Thank you very much, Neil, and thanks to all of you for coming out. I want to begin, as I always do, by thanking the people who make this possible. Our steadfast uh, sponsors of the Canadian Bankers Association, more than that, good friends. Uh, our hosts at the uh, National Arts Centre. It is always a great honour to be able to come to this house of everything that is elegant and soulful and uh, ruin it with politics. And, uh, and our uh, broadcast partners at CPAC. Um, speaking of CPAC, I have one announcement to make. This is uh, something we've now been doing monthly uh, with a pause at summer, uh, but we've now been doing this for a year. We now have 10 conversations uh, that we have recorded with leading newsmakers, current and former prime ministers, uh, artists, uh, provincial politicians, and more. And if you've ever thought to yourself, the only thing that would make it better was that if I didn't have to look at Paul Wells, we are here for you. Because <laughs> starting tonight, uh, we are launching a podcast with recordings of all of the conversations that we've had so far that you can take with you and listen anytime you want, anywhere you want. If you go to cpac.ca backslash in conversation, you can find out more about how to listen and you can subscribe. And as we do new conversations, uh, we'll add those to the mix, um, including this one. Uh, I was being a little mournful because uh, I, I was thinking that the NAFTA adventure of last autumn suddenly seems very distant in the past, but that's okay. It's okay to have uh, historic conversations too and, uh, and to try and catch up on what the heck that was all about back then when it happened. And also, tonight's guest has uh, made a sudden surprise uh, appearance in the day's headlines, and we'll get a chance to talk about that too. Uh, he is Canada's ambassador to Washington. His name is David McNaughton, and we're happy to welcome him here tonight. Excellency, good Thank to see you. What's the temperature in Washington these days? Uh, it's a little bit warmer than this, but it is supposed to snow and we're supposed to have sleet uh, overnight, which means probably they'll close the schools for a whole week. <laughs> it's, uh, they're not used to that down in the swamp. Um, I want to sort of take our time dealing with the t the, your, your whole tenure as, as ambassador. I want this to be like one of those Marvel uh, origin movies where we don't even see Benedict Cumberbatch in the costume until the second hour. Um, and so I want to I wanna begin with the time before your ambassador. I want to talk about the time when a, another president was uh, in power, uh, and then we'll get to the fun stuff. Um, and we should start with a bit of full disclosure. Before you were Canada's ambassador to Washington, you were my wife's business partner. Uh, my wife, Lisa Sampson, runs the Ottawa Office of Strategy Corp, yes. and you are a founder of that company. Um, maybe you can tell me what I've never learned. What is Strategy Corp? Um, well, I have uh, full disclosure in the sense that Leslie uh, Noble, uh, who I live with sometimes, I mean, when I'm not in Washington, um, is a partner in Strategy Corp, and so I have a, an interest in the following, which is that Strategy Corp is the best co consulting firm in uh, North America. I couldn't possibly comment. Um, 
and, 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 and then somehow you became Canada's ambassador to Washington. I was maybe more surprised than the average Canadian. But uh, you have some history with the, with the Liberal Party of Canada before then uh, in a fairly intense way. What's your, what's your political history? Well, um, it goes back a long way. Um, I actually got involved with the, with the uh, I came to Ottawa actually as a result of, um, you know, accidental circumstances. I had, uh, I grew up in Ontario uh, after I graduated from high school. I took a year off. I uh, taught school in a seminary in France. I came back and I was going to go to Western, uh, University of Western Ontario. But I knew that all my friends would be in second year and I'd be frosh, and so I decided to go somewhere else. So I went to the University of New Brunswick. And one Friday morning uh, in my political science class, there was a young lady who was in my class who I was quite interested in. And I said, what are you doing for the weekend? And she said, I'm going to Halifax to a student liberal convention. What are you doing? And I said, funny, I'm going to Halifax for the student level <laughs> convention, too. And we got there, um, and, and they were, there were elections for president of the Atlantic Province's student liberals. And it was quite apparent um, after a couple of beers that nobody liked either of the candidates running. So I put my name in the hat, or in, the, in the race, and I won. Um, <laughs> so I became president of the Atlantic Province's student liberals, a, a kid from Ontario. And the next summer, they decided to bring everybody, uh, all of the regional presidents, to Ottawa. I came to Ottawa and worked for Don Jameson, who was the federal cabinet minister from Newfoundland. And at the end of the summer, he said, when you graduate, come back and work for me full time. And I did. And that was the beginning of my involvement here in Ottawa. I worked for Jameson for six and a half years. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, all started because of some girl was going to a liberal convention in Halifax. It's funny, my, um, uh, my interest in politics happened when I was in second year university. I was uh, a failing chemistry student. And, uh, and I know it well. Yeah. And two guys came and said, look, it's model parliament, and the prime minister needs a parliamentary secretary, so why don't you come and join us? And, um, and uh, six weeks later, I went and told my parents I was transferring into political science. And one of the guys who came to get me uh, to do that was Rod Phillips, who today is the Ontario, Ontario Environment Minister. So um, uh, it's just funny the way life works yeah. out. Rod was not that good looking, honestly. Uh, it wasn't quite the same. Um, <laughs> what was your role in the last federal election? I mean, essentially, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find out a, a, a gentle way to say, how did you get involved with the Young and Dynamic Trudeau team? Well, um, I worked with Gerald Butts in uh, the Ontario government. Uh, he was director of policy. I was principal secretary to the premier from 2003 until 2005. Um, <clears throat> and then at Strategy Corp, uh, Katie Telford came to work uh, for, for us after she uh, stopped working uh, for Gerard Kennedy. And so, you know, I knew both of them and uh, they said um, when, the, when after Justin Trudeau had won the leadership, uh, can you help us during the next federal campaign? And I said yes. And all of a sudden then I ended up being um, campaign co-chair in Ontario with Navdeep Baines. 
And uh, I guess it was around May, I was up here. We were going through our sort of baseline public opinion research and plotting out the strategy for the campaign. And Jerry and Katie and I went out for a drink. And uh, she said, you know, if we win, what do you want? And I said, I, I don't want anything. I mean, I'm, life's good. I'm happy. Uh, it's great. Uh, kids are mostly off the payroll, um, <laughs> mostly. Um, and, and she said, no, no, I mean, like, if there's anything you want, what, what is it? What would it be? And I said, well, I guess there's only one thing I could ever think of, and that would be I'd like to be Canada's ambassador to the United States, but we all know that's not going to happen. And that was kind of the last conversation we had about that um, until the day that the prime minister was sworn in, and we were, my youngest daughter and I were at a, a swearing-in party, and the prime minister came over and said, um, you should probably pack your bags. You're going to Washington. So then I had to go to Toronto and talk to Leslie about that. That was, <laughs> that was the more difficult conversation. What attracted you to that position? You know, I mean, I've always been interested in public policy. Um, I've, you know, I studied U.S. government, U.S. politics, U.S. history. I used to own a consulting firm in Washington. Um, so I had an awful lot of, you know, back and forth experience. And, you know, it's, it's an honor and a privilege to represent your country in any circumstance. But to, to, to think about being Canada's ambassador to the United States, I mean, I just, I never really thought it would happen. And I still, to this day, when I sit in that office, every once in a while, I pinch myself and say, you know, you know am I really here? Um, and sometimes in the last two years, I've done more than pinch myself. <laughs> um, now, there's a, there, I mean, there, you've got a lot of predecessors to, to model from and to examine and to study. Um, but the job is largely open to the interpretation of the incumbent. It's largely, uh, uh, you know, there's not a lot of rules to it. How did you conceive the job and, 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 and was, were there elements of the job that you thought could be done differently or better when you first arrived? Well, I don't think it was so much, you know, the job as ambassador that I was, I thought could be done better. I thought we could do better as a country in terms of, um, you know, I'm going to say educating, but but making the Americans aware uh, of of the importance of Canada to them. I mean, we all know the importance of the United States to us, but um, I think what had happened was that things were moving along so smoothly, everything was going so well that we took the relationship for granted. And that's, that's always a mistake, whether it's, you know, a friendship or a marriage or, or you know, a relationship like ours with the United States. And I think, um, you know, there were obvious signs of protectionism and growing, you know, isolationism, things like that. And I was worried about, you know, how, to, how could we um, pull together as a country and try to educate the Americans about the importance of Canada to them. And even though it's a, you know, it, 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 it's not exactly the same, uh, we still are very important from a security point of view, from a defense point of view, and obviously from a trade point of view with the United States. And so that's really what I, I wanted to make sure that we did that. And, and I think overall, 
as a country, we've done a pretty good job of it. I mean, I think it's been a really good example of what this country can do when everybody pulls together, federal, provincial, um, you know, private sector, public sector. Uh, you know, it's, I, I, I think we've upped our game. And it hasn't been just helpful in terms of the, the NAFTA agreement. It's been, it's been helpful in a whole series of other ways. And it'll pay dividends into the future. But we can never again think that we can just um, take it for granted. This is not something that ends when we get rid of the steel and aluminum tariffs or we get the USMCA or whatever we're going to call it uh, approved. Um, did you speak to any of your predecessors? Did you look? For, did yeah. you shop around for tips? Did you? Well, get I know. I, I you know I I know a lot of them. I used to work with Derek Bernie years ago. Derek and I worked together in uh, external affairs. Uh, a long time ago, um, you know, I knew uh, Frank McKenna really well, uh, and uh, Mike Wilson and Gary Dewar, and yeah, I mean, I tried to to learn learn as much as I could from their experiences. Everybody was in a different circumstance, but but I think, you know, there were some pretty pretty wise uh, and savvy individuals that held the job before I did. Speaking of circumstance, Barack Obama was the president. Um, it seemed uh, at least reasonable to assume that a Democrat would succeed him. Um, did, uh, what, were, what were the challenges that you were facing at that time? Well, I think it, it was an interesting thing. I mean, obviously, the, the personal chemistry between the prime minister and, and Obama was great. Uh, and, but, but it was interesting because he was at the tail end of his eight years and was really into legacy mode. And we were at the beginning of the, the new government's mandate and, and you know, trying to get things moving. And, and there, was, there was some discontinuity in that. I mean, let me give you an example. Um, Obama very much wanted to get the TPP passed and approved by the US Congress. Um, and anything that would get in the way of that, um, he didn't want to deal with. So he didn't want to settle softwood lumber with us. Um, he was very, um, I mean, part of the reason that the whole class seven dairy issue came up was because um, he was very worried about what the dairy industry in the United States was going to react to anything we did and how it would affect TPP. So, so while the, you know, it was great camaraderie and great relationship, it was really hard to get things done with, with them because they were, they had a different focus than we did. Okay. TPP was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, yeah. uh, which a, it, in those days had a nice short title. Yeah. And um, it's, it's essentially a trade deal with every Pacific country except for China. Um, was it Obama's priority precisely because it was kind of a strategic counterweight to China in the region? Very much so. Okay. Very much so. And how did you guys feel about it at the time? Um, like, did, did, did the new liberal government come, take a while to come around to liking Stephen Harper's trade deal? It was a significantly different trade deal that we ended up with. Okay. How so? Well, I mean, I mean there are elements to the, the deal that were not in the original TPP. Uh, which some of the countries uh, didn't like. Uh, but you know, I mean, look, um, I think both the, the CETA deal and TPP, I mean, I will give credit to the previous government in terms of launching those, in terms of trying to uh, broaden opportunities for Canadian business to 
have access to, to other markets. And I think what's happened now is that we have more free trade access than any other G7 country. And that's not, that's not just this government. I mean, this government deserves credit for getting it over the finish line in both, um, you know, both CPTPP and, and CETA and, and obviously securing the access to the U.S. market. But, you know, I think, I think Canadians have embraced uh, trade. They know how important it is to Canada, and I think we're kind of unique in that, in that circumstance in the Western world right now. So uh, there's really good early rapport between Trudeau and Obama. Uh, uh, Trudeau, uh, I believe in January of 2016, has a, uh, not just a trip to Washington, but almost a sort of flotilla. Half of the cabinet goes down and they have bilats and, 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 and it was quite an elaborate thing. And the legend has it that at somewhere around that point, uh, maybe not on that trip, but, but in that part of 2016, you started to warn people here that Donald Trump could conceivably become president, and that they should govern themselves accordingly. Uh, is that is there any truth to that legend? Yeah, I, I mean, I I think the first time I really talked about it was in August uh, of 2016 uh, at the cabinet retreat in Sudbury, and I you know I made a presentation to cabinet and basically said the conventional wisdom in Ottawa, all, or in, in Washington, all the smart people in Washington say the Democrats are gonna win uh, the Senate um, and that uh, Hillary's gonna win. And uh, you know, the only thing I know is that all the smart people in Washington have been wrong every time for the last 18 months. So we should prepare ourselves for the fact that Donald Trump could win uh, the, the Republicans might end up holding the Senate and, and the House, and uh, we should be very care careful about what we say about candidate Trump because he may become President Trump. Uh, I wasn't, I didn't put a lot of money on it, but I mean, it was, it was certainly, I mean, what you could see was, was the factors you know, rising in the United States that that produced the phenomena of Donald Trump, and it was not just in the U.S. I mean, obviously we had Brexit. We've had we've seen it in other places, but it was there was something going on there that I really hadn't hadn't seen before. And he was able to, um, you know, he's a, he's he's he he was able to, you know, pin his his Republican opponents. I mean, you know. Lion Ted, and you know, I mean, all of the things that he said. Um, he was a master in the campaign, and and uh, thank goodness we didn't speak out a lot beforehand. Um, um, so there's keeping your lips buttoned, and there is uh, having any reasonable hope of a productive relationship. Was were there elements of uh, candidate Trump's discourse that looked promising for Canada, or was it just all a minefield? No, I mean, look, the other part of it, and this is, you know, after he won, and we looked at, at you know, how we were going to have constructive engagement, we really looked at where are the areas where we agree um, and where are the areas we disagree. And in the areas we disagree, um, you know, let's not poke them in the eye. It doesn't mean we have to change our policy positions, but. Um, you know, let's focus on the things that we do agree on. And, and the reality is the relationship between Canada and the United States is so broad and so deep 
that if you spend all day talking about the things you agree on, you, you, you run out of time to talk about the ones you disagree on. We knew we were going to have a problem on the trade side, and, and we had to figure out how we were going to have some kind of constructive engagement with them on that. But, but there are lots of areas in security and defense and you know, a whole host of things we do together that, 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 that there wasn't any real confrontation. Where were you on election night? Embassy reception or where were you? Um, well, I thought I had some singers. I didn't think that was one of them. That is one of them. <laughs> what happened was that uh, about two weeks before the uh, U.S. election, Leslie called me and said that um, we'd, been invent we'd been invited duck hunting uh, north shore of Lake Erie to a, 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 a duck hunting club that's been there since before Canada was a country and that they'd never had female, a female shoot there before and that she wanted to go and she would be happy if I would join her. And I said, well, don't you realize that that is US election? And she said, well, yeah, but nobody's gonna wanna to talk to you the day after the election. And so, so anyway, I, I, I had two press releases ready. Um, and, uh, you know, one with Hillary won, one if Donald Trump won. And, and I told my staff I'll be back the day after the election, I mean, the day after the, and, and so, you know, I don't think anybody's gonna wanna to talk to me. And the morning after the election, we were out uh, in separate boats ready to start the duck hunting. And, and um, I get a call from the prime minister's office saying that the prime minister has decided because of the outcome of the election that I was gonna be the sole spokesperson for the government of Canada <laughs> on the US election. And, and they didn't ask me where I was because they just assumed that I was in Washington. So I said, well, I'll get to uh, the closest media center, which I did. Um, and I kept trying to get a hold of Leslie to tell her where I was and there was no answer. And fi finally I got a hold of her and, and, and I thought, you know, this could be one of two responses. One is, you know, you, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> the other one was, I feel so sorry for you, but it was neither one. She asked me whether I'd shot any ducks and whether she could have my limit if I didn't. <laughs> so anyway, so that's where I was on election night. It was, uh, or on, on, on election day. You didn't see Dick Cheney out there? No, I didn't, I didn't. Uh, no, I didn't see him out there. Uh, so let's compress. I, 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 part of me wants you to take me through hour by hour the first 96 hours after the election, but let, say the first few weeks, what, what was the general perception and what was the response? You mean from them? From, more from you. And like how do you, how does one concretely respond to the election of a reality TV star as president of the United States? Um, you know, you, you, you end up dealing with what, you know, the cards you're dealt. Um, so it was really a matter of trying to figure out who was gonna be on the transition team, uh, how, how could we, uh, you know, establish relationships. Um, and, and that was really the focus. I mean, even before the inauguration, we were working on establishing uh, relationships with the people who were on the transition team. And, um, and, you know, people who were 
potentially influential. And I remember I was in New York and I had heard that there was this guy who had been influential in the campaign um, and might end up with a post. And so I called him and asked him if I could come and see him. And he said he was busy, but could I go to lunch? And I said, sure. And I went to lunch. Hey, it was Anthony Scaramucci. Um, and, and, and I ended up at lunch with Mike Pence and, uh, and a couple of, uh, couple of uh, uh, governors and, you know, just started building up relationships. And part of it is you just, you know, you pick up the phone and call people and see what, and, and you, we knew people who knew influential people in the campaign. We just started building up those relationships. So before the inauguration, we already had a lot of people that we uh, we had made contact with. Yeah. It seems to me there's at least three general ways to try and work on a relationship with another country. There's the executive relationship between heads of government. There's the elite decision maker networks. And then there's trying to have some influence on political culture and public perception. Uh, at some point, uh, maybe starting around the time of the inauguration, it was pretty clear that this government had decided to to do all three. Like that, you were just you were you were there was nothing you weren't going to try. Um, how did you reach that conclusion? Well, you know when when seventy two percent of your exports are to one country, and you're facing an existential threat you do everything you can. And I, I, I was convinced that we were, you know, we had a real problem if we didn't um, put everybody to work on building all of those relationships. And, and, and you know, it's interesting um, how many of them ended up uh, bearing fruit. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't any silver bullet. It wasn't like, well, if you can get to so-and-so, he's actually going to make all the difference in the world. Um, but I know, you know, for instance, you know, the relationship with Sonny Perdue um, helped in terms of stopping the president from tearing up NAFTA, invoking the six-month clause. Um, the Ag Secretary? Yeah, the Ag, the Ag Secretary, because he, he, um, he actually showed the president where uh, you know where the impact might be and how those uh, states voted and everything else, and I think it was it was very impactful in terms of having the president step back from tearing up the agreement. And then you know um, about a month before we actually you know came to agreement on the on the deal, um, I had a cup a call from a couple of senators, uh, one Democrat, one Republican, who said. Uh, we want to come and talk to you about um, what's going on. And I said, sure. And they said, can we bring some of our colleagues? And I said, yes. And anyway, we ended up with 16 senators at the embassy with me for dinner a month before. And it was like half of them were Democrats, half of them were Republicans. They were genuinely interested in seeing how we could move things along. And it was really then that you started hearing some, some words out of Congress saying, if Canada is not part of this, don't count on this passing. And I'm not sure that it made all the difference in the world, but there's no question that it nudged them along in terms of being more reasonable. Same thing with governors, same things with some influential business people. I just don't think we would have got to where we, where we did without 
all of that happening. And, and as I say, that wasn't, that wasn't just me going out and doing all of this. this. It really was, you know, I remember phoning Brad Wall up when he was Premier of Saskatchewan one time and saying, look, we've got a problem. We, you know, such and such minister can't go to uh, Iowa to this special event they're having for Canada. Could you please go? He said, absolutely. I mean, and that was the response from, from everybody, whether they were conservatives or NDP or liberals, didn't matter. And the same thing in the business community. And I think um, it made a difference. Um, in order to have that kind of effort south of the border, there, there needed to be some rewiring of government north of the border. Uh, what did that entail? Well, there was, um, uh, you know, th there was a central point in PMO, and then, you know, the same thing in the bureaucracy, and there was, there was really a coordinating effort that went on here. Um, and, and I think that was, that was essential, because you had to have um, ministers available, and we had to be, you know, be aware of any of the policy changes we might be making and what its impact would have in the United States. So, so it was a really, you know, good coordinated effort. I mean, I, um, we talked, I talked to Ottawa all the time. Um, sometimes, you know, if I couldn't get a decision, I'd just go ahead and do something, but, but that's, you know, I always I used to say to our folks at the embassy, it's easier to seek forgiveness than permission on some of these things. But I think we had an overall framework within which we had permission to do things. And I think that was, it, it really made not just people at the embassy, but throughout all the consulates and everything feel empowered. And I know, you know, it was, it was something that um, people felt was important. Um it often seemed like what you were essentially trying to do was to activate everybody in the United States who had uh, serious Canadian interests and may not, until uh, you flip the switch, may not have even realized that. That's correct. And, and, and many of them didn't. They had no idea. Uh, was that effort welcome or was it sometimes, like, get off my back, you Canadians? Or, or well, There's a bit of that. Most of that came from the administration uh, when we were in the negotiations. I used to, you know, Ambassador Lighthizer and Wilbur Ross used to say that we were going around them to Congress. Um, you know, I would comment to them that actually there are two quite distinct branches of government in the United States, three actually, um, and, and uh, it's entirely appropriate for us to go to Congress because at the end of the day, Congress is going to say yes or no to whatever deal there is. So. Um, but no, they, there were occasionally, you know, shots saying, why are you doing this? Um, I mean, near the end, especially around the G7 Charlevoix, when, when, when the president really had a bad reaction to something, um, there seemed to be deep aggravation with just about every element of this. They didn't like the prime minister. They didn't like the way the foreign minister talked. They didn't like the fact that you were talking to a bunch of Americans. Um, did you worry that somehow you had... Um, taken so much care to do it right that you had, you know, oversalted the soup or whatever the metaphor is, and that and that and that you had just managed to make them all angrier than they would have been otherwise. Um, you know, you're you're never sure that you've got the calibration right, um, but you know what happened in Charlevoix was that um, I had back surgery the week before, so I wasn't able to go. 
So when all of that happened, I phoned Jerry and Katie and said, you know, I leave you alone for 48 hours and look at what happened. <laughs> uh, but no, it was, it, it, look, I, I, you know, sometimes the president reacts to things and it's hard to understand exactly what it is. I don't know whether it was because he was on his way uh, to see the North Korean, uh, you know, to see Kim or whether it was, uh, you know, you saw something that the prime minister said on television. I, I, I still, to this day, don't understand that. Um, obviously, both Kudlow and, and Navarro, I think, overreacted and then withdrew it. It, it, it wasn't, um, it, it didn't have a huge impact on things, frankly. I mean, we were back at it um, shortly thereafter. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the rhetoric is, just that. Um, and, you know, I used to say to Minister Freeland when, when uh, you know, Lighthizer would complain about going around behind his back to Congress, I'd say, I guess we better do more of that, you know, because obviously if it's bothering them that, you know, we're having some impact. Um, and as I say, it's tough. You got to be really careful you don't so annoy them that you can't have a negotiation. On the other hand, you know, sitting back and, and having them, you know, tell you what to do is is uh, not the right answer either. Um, on the substance of the thing, did it feel like just a, a continual process of making con concessions and hoping that the beatings would stop, or uh, <laughs> was it just how much do we have to give you to make this? get better or, or, or did it feel like a real negotiation? Oh yeah, no, it was a real, well, it didn't feel like a real negotiation for a long time because I mean, basically what happened was, um, you know, we would make suggestions, they would say no, they would make suggestions, we would say no. Um, it was, it was, it was the first, gosh, I don't know, at least 12 months, uh, there was very little light at the end of the tunnel. I think there was some significant, uh, times when breakthroughs happened. One of them was the end of uh, January and the Montreal round where we first put on the table the notion of the $16 an hour uh, labor in the auto rules of origin. Um, and it was, it, was, it was good because what happened in that was it, it changed the dynamic because before then it was essentially the Americans and we were, uh, I wouldn't say on the same side as the, the Mexicans, but we were getting beat up as well as the Mexicans. And then when that happened, we actually ended up in the, on the same side of the table as the Americans. Um, and and, and that, that really did make a difference because the auto sector is so important. Um, and then, um, I mean, the Mexicans weren't very happy about it, but it was clearly in our interest to try to side with the Americans and, and have the Mexicans a little bit worried about it. And then I think, um, you know, obviously when the Mexicans uh, did the deal that they did in, in July and we were in a situation where, um, you know, we had to look at whether we were going to agree to the things that they agreed to, um, I mean, that was a pretty tough time. It was, uh, and we were lots of people here who were critical. Uh, some saying, go ahead and do, do whatever you can to get the deal. Um, but there were certain things in, that we had to hold out for. And fortunately, 
in almost every circumstance, we got what we held out for. I mean, we, had, we knew what we had to give, and fortunately we held on to it to the end and were able to get the things that we thought were really meaningful in the long term. What were those things that so, we got? So, so, you know, their original proposal in terms of the sunset clause was, would have, you know, led to a uncertainty in terms of investment that would have just, you know, made it extremely difficult. Um, no question that, you know, we wanted Chapter 19 to stay in. Uh, it would have, I mean, that is the one thing that has allowed us uh, to have a decent outcome on softwood lumber negotiations. Um, you know, I think, I think there were things in the, you know, there were lots of improvements that were made in terms of digital trade and all that, which was more cooperative. Um, but, but, you know, and, and we wanted to have a strength in Chapter 20, which is the state-to-state -state, um, arbitration thing. And, you know, um, getting rid of uh, ISDS in terms of the Americans' ability to sue us, but retaining it because of our uh, participation in TPP uh, with the Mexicans was, a, I think, a real win uh, at the end of the day. So, so there were a lot of things that, that, that ended up being very successful in it that um, I don't think, frankly, the president cared all that much about. I mean, he was so focused on 300% tariffs on dairy that, um, you know, as long as we could uh, give something on the, the dairy side, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a huge amount of leverage. There were voices in, around Ottawa who said that um, um, four chapters in particular that were part of the opening Canadian position were ludicrous virtue, virtue signaling. Uh, the environment, uh, the labor provisions, the indigenous provisions, and the uh, uh, gender provisions were uh, the sort of stuff that makes Justin Trudeau happy, but that the Americans couldn't possibly care about or agree to. How did those elements work out? So uh, I heard those comments. Some of them were made directly to me. I won't mention who mentioned them to me, but. Uh, I think you probably know. And all I can say to those people is thank goodness that we did have some of those provisions because those are the provisions that are going to have the Democrats in the new Congress and the new House vote for the deal at the end of the day. And if we didn't have those in, some of those in, in the way, if we didn't have a labor chapter, if we didn't have an environment chapter, if we didn't have the $16 an hour uh, uh, thing if we didn't have the chapter 20 strengthening I, I don't think I don't think this deal would be going through but because of those I think we've got a shot at getting it done okay that forgive me that doesn't sound like great foresight that sounds like you get lucky at the end like it turns out that stuff that you need oh come on <laughs> you know it, well well you know interestingly enough and I got to give Bob Lighthizer some credit in this, is that throughout the negotiations, he had, um, he wanted to make sure that regardless of what the outcome of the midterms, that he could get this deal through. And so, um, you know, some of those things that we, that I am claiming credit for right now, probably he might have had something to do with, but, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to claim credit for it. <laughs> Fair enough. There are uh, all kinds of uh, windows into that negotiating room. There's the 
professional public servant who, who led the negotiations, Steve Verhul. There was you as ambassador, there was Minister Freeland as foreign minister, and there was a very attentive group uh, in the building down the street here in the prime minister's office. Very roughly speaking, what's the mix? Who's, uh, how much of your time was spent, was, was spent uh, eyes on that negotiation? Oh, an awful lot. Um, I mean, how many hours a day? I don't know. It varied. Obviously, there were times where it was really intense. I mean, look, uh, Christian Freeland was the, the coach and the quarterback. Um, she has unbelievable energy and uh, she's smart and she's, uh, you know, she's, she's hardworking. Um, and she and I used to talk, if not every day, every other day. Um, Steve Verhul and, and the, we, we couldn't have done it without the expertise of the, of the professional negotiators. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, we, we talked about at the beginning is when you're up against somebody who's as big and strong as the United States in this kind of a negotiation, the only way you're gonna win is by working harder, uh, being more creative, uh, and and hanging together. And I mean, the, the beauty of of um, of our team was while we did have disagreements. I mean, obviously, um, you know, there are times where you want either with strategy or tactics or whatever. Um, but we 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 when we made a decision, then everybody fell in. Uh, you know, behind it. And then Katie and Jerry were clearly involved in it. And whenever I asked them to be involved, you know, asked them to do something, they would. Brian Clow was invaluable. Um, I mean, it really was a, a terrific team. And, and, and you know, we had um, the advice, her, you know, Minister Freeland's advisory group that involved people like Ronna Ambrose and, and, you know, a uh, whole slew of people, you know, Jim, uh, Moore, uh, James Moore. Um, so it was it was multi-partisan, and then we had we tried to get input from the private sector, which was terrific, which helped us understand. Like when you get into things like the rules of origin, I mean, it is so complicated that you know. And and I think the one thing, and I remember the last four days that were so intense when we were close to getting an agreement, but we weren't there. And I remember, you know, we were talking about. Um, you know, about whether we'd give on this or give on that or ask for something else. And, and I was thinking about it, you know, we're just not moving pieces, chess pieces around on a board. We're talking about communities, jobs, people's lives. And, you know, it's a, it's a real burden, um, which we took seriously, but you never, that's why it's really important to have experts who are telling you, well, if you do that, this is what the impact is going to be. I mean, we had a whole, uh, you know, I think five or six hour debate on the Saturday before we did the deal about infant formula and its impact on this plant that was being built in Kingston, you know, and, and about opening up markets for sugar beets, largely coming from Lethbridge, Alberta. And, you, you know, you, you, I mean, down to that level of detail, we were trying to figure out how do we get the best deal. Um, but, but we couldn't have done it without the kind of dedication. I'll never forget, you know, one day um, we were 
we were in Washington and, and uh, you know, one of the senior guys uh, went out of the room and he came back and he looked a little down and I said, what's up? And he said, well, you know, a bit tough. And I said, what? And he said, well, today's our 25th wedding anniversary. I'm not home. And there were lots of stories like that. There were lots of people who gave up, you know, kids concerts and, you know, special events just because they're dedicated. I want to move on to sort of the current situation with a very different Congress, but let's not leave that deep network activation that was key to the strategy. Is that something that now is going to sort of uh, deactivate and go by the wayside, or is that something that uh, should have happened long before and needs to continue? I yeah, I mean, somebody asked me, you know, if you had to do things differently, would you, what would you have done? And I meant, I, I took it to be you in the collective sense, and I just said, well, we should have started it five years ago. Um, and what I would say today is we can't stop. I mean, we have, we have 100 new members of Congress uh, who you know, need to be educated in the best way possible about the Canada-US relationship. And, and while it is going to be increasingly important for us to take advantages, take advantage of those new trading relationships we have in Asia and in Europe, the reality is, is that the U.S. relationship is going to continue to be the most important relationship we have for a long, long time to come. And so we can't, we can't you know, take it for granted. Um, and I think it's going to be even more important from a defense and security point of view. I mean, I think, you know, we've been part of NATO and we've been part of NORAD. What we're, see, what we're starting to see is, you know, things in our own hemisphere um, becoming more and more challenging. And I think we're going to have to work more closely with the Americans and with the Mexicans and with some of our uh, Latin American uh, neighbors to, to make sure that our, our neighborhood uh, stay safe and secure. Um, maybe reinvigorating the Three Amigos Summit process, which yeah. had fallen by the wayside yeah. a bit, or? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, and I think also it's been really interesting to see um, the work that Minister Freeland's done in the Lima Group in terms of you know the Venezuela situation. I met with um, about 15 ambassadors uh, in Washington last week to talk about Venezuela listening to the Colombians and, um, and some of the others about what the impact on their countries have been. I mean, uh, Colombia, after going through that, you know, really tortuous period and coming out of it in good shape, all of a sudden has a million um, Venezuelan refugees in, in, in their backyard, and it's, uh, it's tough. How important is the um, direct relationship with President Trump to all of this? Look, you can never underestimate, um, you know, having a decent relationship with the president of the United States. Um, but, you know, he's very transactional. You know, he really is. I mean, he is. Um, you have to demonstrate to him each and every time what's in it for the United States, and we have to think about, you know, how do you characterize things in a way which will appeal to the things that he's interested in. And it's, that's a bit of a, it's not a science, it's a bit of an art. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. 
but he's, he's, he's a disruptor. Um, some of the disruption has been, I think, uh, you know, perhaps a bit overdue, and some of it has been, um, you know. The other kind. The other kind. Uh, it's got to feel like Groundhog Day sometimes. You, you, you do all the work. Yeah, you get to do all the work of getting to a certain point, and then, so Christian Freeland, a huge part of her strategic objective in foreign policy was getting as close to Rex Tillerson as possible so that he could be a force multiplier. And then he force multiplied himself out of the job. And, uh, and, and now the relationship with Mike Pompeo was very different. That's got to be frustrating. Yeah, it did. I mean, obviously, we've seen a huge change in personnel. I mean, I think, you know, I was with, uh, with Minister Freeland, uh, you know, in a meeting with Pompeo just before Christmas. They had a great discussion about things. I mean, they've been, they've been in contact on a regular basis. I think she's developed a really good, positive relationship. You know, I, I um, talk to Ambassador Kraft um, every other day. She's been tremendously helpful. Um, I mean, I, I, I joke about the Tillerson, um, my, my story is before Christmas last year, not like a year, 15 months ago, I had dinner with Rex Tillerson and, and then he got fired. And then after Christmas, I had, uh, HR McMaster and his wife over for dinner <laughs> and you know what happened to him. And then uh, in December of this past year, uh, I had lunch with Jim Mattis. Um, and, and I don't understand it, but a lot of people at the embassy are encouraging me to invite Peter Navarro over for dinner. But, I don't know why, but... I'm starting to regret having you here tonight. I, don't... <laughs> I had a good run. Uh, tell me about this new Congress. Uh, Democrat majority in the House. Um, and they clearly uh, come to get some stuff done. Is NAFTA, USMACA, CUSMA, whatever we're calling it, is it in danger? I don't think so. I mean, I think it's interesting. I was saying to somebody the other day that, I mean, I understand um, that there's been a lot of reports about, you know, maybe it's in trouble, um, but I commented that most of the people that say that it's in trouble are in the business of selling their services to people who want to get it done. And not that I think that that's a bad thing, because I used to do the same thing, but, but you know, uh, hire me because it's in trouble, and if you don't hire me, it probably won't get through, is, is when you see people commenting on it, a lot of them are in that category. There's no question that there are Democrats who are raising issues about about the agreement. But having said that, when you look at it and you say to them, you know, again, there was no labor and environment chapter in the previous NAFTA. There was no $16 an hour, um, you know, in $16 an hour in auto plants. Um, you know, you're, you're rid of ISDS, which you don't like. Um, you know, I mean, go through all of that and, and then say to yourself, do you really want to not have this? I mean, is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. But is it, it, is it, is it substantial progress over the existing agreement on so many things? I mean, the answer to that is clearly yes. And I think when it comes, I mean, that's the beauty of the, the, the fast track authority. 
in the, in the US system, if you got fast track, they, they, they can only say yes or no. And, and I think at the end of the day, when they, when, they, when they have to vote, they will vote in favor of the agreement. I think the question you have to ask yourself is with all the things that are going on in Washington, when is it gonna come to a vote? And I think that's, uh, if, I, if I could predict that, I'd, anyway, I, I, I can't. I think, I think it'll, it'll come to a vote before the end of the summer session. I hope so, but I can't, I can't be assured of that. So your argument to the Democrats in Congress is not that the new treaty is uh, averts disaster or that it's a compromise that we can live with. It is that it is positive improvement over NAFTA. It is. Is that true for Canada too? Absolutely it is. How so? Well, it's an improvement. I mean, you know, when, when you look at the volume of trade between our two countries in automobiles, mm -hmm. um, it's a significant improvement. And the side letter that we have, which essentially insulates this country from any act, 232 action the president might take um, until and unless there's 70% increase in automotive exports from Canada, and that's a pretty nice insurance policy which doesn't exist at the present moment. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think the elimination of ISDS, I say, is, is positive. I think that there are, there are many elements of the agreement which I think are significant improvements. I mean, there's no question that um, giving up further dairy access is something that is of concern. Obviously, the government's going to have to make some decisions about compensating those farmers. But, you know, overall, I think it's a, I think it's a big improvement over the, over the, uh, the existing deal. If you, if you ask me, do you want to go back to what we had or do you want to uh, take this? I, I'd take this every day. Okay. Um, the, I'm saving all the stuff about Jerry Butts for the end. The, uh, I told you I got to leave in a minute, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, the Canada-US relationship is kind of psychologically fraught, certainly for Canadians. Uh, if you get too close to the Americans, you, get, you take on water. If you uh, blow the relationship, it's catastrophic, both politically and economically. Is that something that is uh, constantly, that you actually have to keep in mind, is, is modulating the, the degree of closeness? Yeah, although, you know, so much of the political perception of it is around, you know, a few things. Um, the reality is that we work so closely together on so many different areas, whether it be on, you know, uh, pandemic uh, research, whether it be on, um, you know, uh, keeping the grid, the North American grid up and resilient and, you know, there, there are there, the, the cybersecurity. I mean, all of those things um, are so important to our economy and our security, and they happen all the time. And so, so you know, I think there's a lot of the the superficial stuff, which is, you know, does the president like the prime minister or vice versa? And while it's important, the reality is day in and day out, there's so many things that go on that are positive. Um, so I, um, I I think it's I think it's an important. Um, it's obviously you've got to 
keep worrying about it from a political point of view, and you have to make sure it doesn't deteriorate from a substantive point of view. I think the other thing that you know I, I learned throughout all of this is that I think we've got to recognize this in terms of some of the other challenges that we face, which is you know artificial intelligence and a, you know hugely um, you know disruptive technology in our in our economy is that as a small country with you know 35 or 36 million people, we have to work together. Doesn't mean we, we don't have to have differences of opinion, but um, if we're fighting among, amongst each other all the time, uh, we're not gonna end up winning in a world which is intensely competitive at the present moment. And how we, how we calibrate that over time is gonna be important to, to this country and how successful it is. Uh, funny family expedition stories. UNO duck hunting and the, they elected Donald Trump. I was uh, rounding up the family to go out for a skate yesterday for a family day, and Gerald Butts resigned, um, which means the prime minister is short one uh, principal secretary. Is that a job for David McNaughton? You know, um, I, uh, I think the job I've got right now is a really important job, and I think Gerald, Gerald's job is a really important job. But I don't like leaving things, I don't like leaving unfinished business and I've still got some business to do. I've got to try to work with our team and with the private sector and premiers to get those 232 tariffs off steel and aluminum. We've got to make sure that uh, uranium doesn't get whacked with the same kind of thing. We've got to find a way to get New Brunswick excluded from the softwood lumber, uh, and we need to get a softwood lumber deal. So, you know, I was disappointed uh, more personally than anything else. I mean, uh, Gerald and I have been friends for for a long time. Um, I think he's he's worked really hard. Um, you can you can agree or disagree with him, but I don't like to see um, some of the comments that are being made when you have, I, I particularly worry about, you know, the impact on families. And this isn't just about Gerald, it's about the, 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 the tone of the public discourse these days. I think we've got to figure out how we can be a little bit more civil to each other. Because um, again, we can't afford to drive good people out of public life. Um, it's really important. And um, I just, I just, I, you know, I, every time, Gerald and I have had our differences of opinion, but I've never doubted his integrity and his, uh, you know, his dedication to this country. On that note, uh, we're going to wrap it up. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us. I understand you're going to start heading back to Washington tonight. I want to thank everyone else uh, for coming out tonight. Uh, in the ambassador's absence, we're going to have a reception next door. I hope you can join us. I want to thank our sponsors of the Canadian Bankers Association, our partners at the National Arts Centre and CPAC, and we'll see you again real soon. Good night. Thanks.